I'm Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs again of Web Yeshiva and Tradition, and welcome to all of you that are joining us from all over the world for this special evening, uh, marking Rabbi Soloveitchik's 120th birthday and his upcoming 30th Yorit site, which will be marked this coming uh, Pesach. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Tova Lichtenstein, uh, daughter of Rabbi and Mrs. Soloveitchik. Uh, but of course, we have to we have to uh, make mention of uh, and, and express our, our deep gratitude to her for making the extra efforts to be with us because in fact, as I'm sure many of you know, she just got up this morning from Shiva for her older sister, Dr. Atara Tversky. Uh, and first of all, uh, Dr. Lichtenstein, to you and to the whole, uh, to the whole mishpacha. Before we start talking about the legacy of your father and your mother, let's take a moment to uh, to remember your sister, Dr. Tversky, who, of course, among her many accomplishments, continued the important work of your parents in leading the Maimonides School for, for what, about four decades? Isn't that correct? Tova, you're, you're muted. You have to unmute. There you go. Am I okay now? Yes, go ahead. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay. okay. Uh, in, 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 well, I, I, I think I'll put it in the context. I was sitting Shiva for my sister on Shabbos from his mother's yard site. Today is my father's birthday and all of them met together. My sister continued my mother's work uh, in, in, in being actively involved in the Maimonides Day School for 40 years. And uh, and at the same time, she was the Rebbitson of Talna, and she was in a unique combination of brisk and Talna. And if there could be such a thing, I never. I think my father didn't think years ago there could be such a thing. But as he lived with her, he saw that you could have this, and it could become an integral part, and it could all be part of one whole personality. I thank you for your condolences. And I, I, if I can only have a moment to respond to what I heard from Rabbi Bravinda. Yes, please. And from Molly, um, the very fact that my father, despite the fact that he thought his students weren't relating to him emotionally, one of the most uh, powerful experiences I had during this week of Shiva of Shiva was that people came and I'd say, who are you? Well, I studied with your father 30 years ago, people I'd never seen in my whole life. One man sat there and sat there and sat there. As he went to leave, I said to him, tell me, how how how, how do you come here? He says, I was your father's here for 30 years, for three years. When I heard his daughter died, I shouldn't come to be Menachem Mughal, his other daughter. And the, the, I would tell you, tens of Talmudim came. And if that's not a deep, deep relationship with your Rebbe, then I don't right. know what a deep relationship right. is. Right. Okay. But he did, in fact, express reservation and uh, ambivalence about the degree to which he, he succeeded on these matters. Even though, he, even though we view it as a success, he viewed it uh, with some level of uh, uncertainty. But, you know, there are certain things I've come to the conclusion. I've come to this conclusion through my life that you need a Rikas Yomim to see the second chapter. And many times 
you have a feeling that you've been that you have failed many times you have a, you see your children people around you getting themselves into difficult situations but if god gives you a gift of a rehas yomim then you can see the second chapter and sometimes the sometimes baruch hashem the second chapter is good i think i think even a history of people yeah, people that left Europe under dire circumstance. They didn't know they were saving their lives. They thought they were leaving Europe because they had no jobs, they had nothing, they were unsuccessful, and they and they, in a sense, saved their lives from the Holocaust. So I think my father in the first chapter didn't see this. I think I was blessed to see it. And he didn't Well, I wanna I wanna come back to that a little later in our conversation. Uh the degree to which his students, his institutions, and frankly, the whole Orthodox Jewish world, both in the United States and in Israel, ended up in a in a different place than it was when, when he was struggling and toiling along with so many others to try to get us to where we are. But I want to come back. You you mentioned you mentioned that of course today Yudbet Adar was your father's birthday, today his 120th birthday, yesterday, Yud Aleph Adar. Uh, marked your your mother Aleha Shalom's fifty uh, sixth yard site. If I'm if I'm doing the math uh, the math correctly, okay, yeah. and uh, and of course any conversation about Rabbi Soloveitchik's influence and accomplishments uh, should not overlook the contribution that your mother made on her own and as part of a you know frankly a a, a very uh, a portrait of a very unique uh, marriage in that time and in that Jewish world. Um, in 1965, in The Lonely Man of Faith, which of course here at Tradition we're, we're so obviously proud of and can easily point to as the most significant thing uh, ever published in our, in our journal, he dedicates it to Tonya, a woman of great courage, sublime dignity, total commitment, and uncompromising truthfulness. Now, recently, I had a I had a, a, a pretty a special peek into the personality of of your mother because in our upcoming issue, uh, you'll be publishing a chapter called Mrs. Soloveitchik, and the title was chosen with great deliberation between author and editor. Mrs. Soloveitchik, a biographical sketch to help understand who your mother was. And uh, and what role she played in Jewish life and learning and education in the United States and the combination of these two great figures in this very dynamic marriage and how they came to make some of those contributions. So why don't you tell our our listeners and viewers a little bit about how that essay came to be and some of the things that you're you're doing in that essay uh, coming up. The, the essay came to be in a, in a rather surprising manner. I was contacted by a professor at the University of Vienna, Professor Michael Vermeke. I suppose that's in that Germany. Germany. In German. I've never heard. It. I've never spoken to him, and I've only written to him. And he is a professor of religious education at the Divinity School at the University of Vienna, and he found my mother's thesis. My mother wrote a thesis on the uh, ed, ed, the Jewish folks building and the folk education in in Poland in the 1920s, and she 
visited schools and she went to see the the Bund of Yiddish school. She went to the Chadorim. She has all kinds of chats there, how many children in a room and how big the rooms are. Very, very uh, extensive discussion of education. And they found this such an amazing document. And then they asked me to write a biography of my mother. And I began to write about my mother. And they found it so interesting because I described there how she had implemented. I, I read the I read the thesis. They translated it to, to English for me. I don't read German. And I read it. And, and I said to I saw myself that many of the things she had written about, and especially one sentence, those the one tradition, but modern educational methods, that time has not yet come. And then I understood that when she was so active with my father in running the, the Maimonides School in Boston, that's where she implemented this. When I wrote their essay, they were so taken with it that they decided to publish a book, and it's called Tanya Soloveitcher, a, a Lithuanian American educator, and her and her uh, educational theory, and that, to my mind, is literally Triata Mesim, and because no one really knew about her, and she was very modest, she never told, and I think she was Mrs. Soloveitcher and not much more than that. And little did people know this. And so when I say you need to have a Yerichas Yomim to see the second chapter, that's one of the things I mean, because this second chapter is really, she's getting recognition for the contribution that she made to Jewish education. So that, that book is going to be published next year in, in Germany. At the, end, at, at, the end, at the end of this year, the end of 23. And and, uh, and you you took that introductory sketch that you wrote and you tailored it. It, it underwent uh, you know a good deal of of revision uh, for us. It will be will be publishable. You write about Rabbi Soloveitchik and Mrs. Soloveitchik one way for Goyim and another way for far people. (laughs) But as you describe some of her achievements as him being the visionary of what a Jewish day school should be. But her being the one that put it into practice and made it a reality. So, can you describe some of that dynamic between them and and how that how that played itself out? How the dynamic between my father and mother? Yeah, in terms of, in in terms of you know crafting an educational vision and then implementing it in practice at Maimonides. I think first of all, my father always had an educational vision that women were no different than men. In terms of their being, I would say, of Hashem, of their intellectual capacities, of their needing to study Torah. If Torah was Torah was the central, the central core of my father's personality, and that's what he was mitasek. He was osek bedivrei Torah. He was mit. He's the among the few people. I don't say the only, but the among few people. I think that's what Rabbi Bravender was saying. He was mitasek bedivrei Torah. He thought about it all the time. All the time he thought about it. One day when we were visiting as a young married couple, uh, the, my parents in their summer home in Onset. So my husband was sitting and learning. And my husband, my father came over to him and says to him, Aaron, when you eat, you never digest. Why do you learn so much? And he said to him, you have to learn the sukya, then you close the Gemara, and then you sit and think about it. And so I think that what happened was he had an educational vision. 
and his educational vision was that men and women could were could study Gemara. He he came from a home where his mother, his mother knew Gemara, his mother knew Shulchan Aruch, his mother, his mother was a very learned woman, both in secular and in and religious studies. And we were brought up that women had to study, women had to go to shul. I never in my life sat outside of a sukkah, never ate outside of a sukkah, because there was no difference. And he had this vision that they should be in a school together and they should study Torah together. But, you know, having a vision and implementing it are two very different things. In order to implement it, you really need someone that knows how to, how to, how to do this. And as she was an educator, she was practical and she was visionary in her own way. He used to think of projects and and no he would attract what i wrote there he would attract the people with the money and she would think of the projects and the 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 kolel elion at yu she's the one that got one million dollars to start it now who in his in, in those days in 1960 something I mean, one million dollars yeah. what orthodox jew got a got a contribution of a million dollars to start anything and she yeah. thought of the Ragozin Institute. She thought of, which I think was the most creative, the Rashe Yeshiva, you know, did not get very high salaries of YU. And she thought of a, of a project that they would get from, she got from Mr. Gruss a sum of money that to every Russia Yeshiva's salary would be added on every month money. And so the, the school, YU was interested because it did not make, make them have to, they did, they did not have to commit themselves long-term. They only had to commit themselves as long as the money was lasting, but the money lasted a while. And then, then eventually they could raise the salaries. And she, she raised the salaries of all the Rashe Yeshiva at YU. I thought that was exceedingly creative. And so, he, my father and she were partners in that he would attract the the rich people that were attracted by his personality and she would think of something that she could do for Jewish education for them and that's what they did they were partners in in, in Maimonides together uh they 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 really were in a, a unique team a unique team Right. Now, you mentioned now, and I've, I've heard you mention in the past, that your father came to this rather countercultural. I mean, the way you express it, it seems so obvious. The way Rabbi Bravin described it, it seems so obvious. If Torah study is the end all and be all of, of, of right. Jewish life, uh, so obviously everyone, men, women, and children, should be involved in it. But nevertheless, we have to admit that it was a kind of countercultural position at the time that he that he championed it. Now, I've heard you say in the past, and you mentioned it again now in passing, that the, the major influence uh, on him here was his was his mother. Could you could you say another word about that? I truly think so. I truly think so. Maybe others will say differently, but as I as I understand it, my mother was a Feinstein, and she was the daughter of Rebelia Feinstein, who was the rabbi Prujana. And she also was the cousin, the first cousin of Yitzhak Hatzenelson, who was the, the Meshawar of the Shoah. He was not religious. He was a socialist. 
And uh, when my pa my grandparents were first married, so you know, in those days they used to call it Yiddish Kest, and they used to go to live with the grand with the father-in-law, and he would support the husband. And so my grandmother and grandfather went to live in Prujana with together with uh, Rebellia and his wife. And at the same time, your mother and your father, your mother and your father went father, to the, excuse me, went to my mother and father, went at the same time, went to, to Pujana, and they were living with her parents, with Rebellion and his wife. And at the same time, Yitzhak Nelson was running away from the Tsar because he was suspected of revolutionary. They lived in the same house. And my my great grand, my great grandfather Rebellia was able to have in his home house. He could contain a home in which there was a socialist writer and and a great Talmud Chacham, and they all lived together in peace there. Now, that is a great influence upon uh, my, my my grandmother, and her influence was such that I think my grandfather was exposed to secular studies and he realized that that you could be, there's a famous story we tell in our family that somebody, some rabbi, some of the great, one of the great rabbonim sent a mutual relative to my grandfather to tell him he shouldn't send his son to Berlin. And my grandfather said to him, my son, Will go to Berlin and he will still be and he will be the Godel Hadur. And he he learned how to contain it. And he contained it and my father, but my father, I always claim that the study of of philosophy was a toolbox. Torah was the essence of his life. And he used philosophical tools in order to to explain concepts, to explain concepts in in machshavah, not in halachah, but in machshavah, he used that to explain. He used the toolbox of philosophy in his philosophical writings. His halachic writings were brisk, brisk, pure brisk to my mind. And Rabbi uh, Bravender can correct me because he was in the shir, I was not. <laughs> um, a number of years ago. Uh, about a decade ago, I guess, uh, to coincide with the 20th year at site. You published an article in, in Tradition. There's a link to it here in the in the chat box, and everyone else can find it on uh, the website of traditiononline.org. An article in our winter 2011 issue called Reflections on the Influence of the Rav on the American Jewish Religious Community. And among the things that you write there is that, and this goes back to what we were speaking about a few moments ago in terms of the long arc of history and being able to see things after Arichat Yamim that were not necessarily visible when you're in the moment when we're like rats in the maze, not knowing where the exit's going to be. You say very clearly that the current existence of a thriving and dynamic community of Torah scholars, of Balabatim involved in the general culture and deeply committed to Talmud Torah and Shmirat Mitzvot may be attributed in no small measure to the influence of your father, the Rav. So I think this is something that certainly you're preaching to the choir here in, in this audience. We're all devotees of the Rav and we all understand and appreciate his, his colossal contribution to, to Jewish life. But can you tease that out a bit for us? How, how do you think this happened? How do you think that the, the remarkable 
the, the, the incredible, not just survival, but thriving of religious committed Jewish life in the United States, around the world, in Israel, uh, at a time when others were pointing to orthodoxy at the very same moments that, that, that the Rav was at the height of his powers, uh, giving those shiurim, writing those essays, others were portraying orthodoxy as a, 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 a case test of institutional decay. But the exact opposite happened. How do you think that came about and how do you see his, his role and contribution to that? That, that's a big question, you know, and that, that's a whole article. How do I think it came about? I, I, I don't know how it came about, but I can tell you what happened, because coming about is, well, what were the causes of it? And I think the causes of it probably were many fold, but how it came about, I think when he, when in the United States in the 50s, I think it was in the 50s, the, the Orthodox community was on the decline and if you if you went to YU and you went to the placement committee the placement bureau it was called when you had a, when you got a rabbinus they would tell you that there were not very many orthodox shuls and you could take a shul with mixed pews mm -hmm. many students went to the seminary rather than getting smicha from YU they would finish college and they'd go on to the, to the Jewish Theological Seminary. And I think my father realized that uh, orthodoxy is about to split itself and, and to become either Haredi or to go all the way left and to become conservative. Conservative in that day, on those days, was not conservative now. It still was patrilineal. Uh, I think the seminary had a, a regular minion with a, with a mechitza, but he, under, he thought that this was a dangerous thing. And I think the watershed was when he gave that psakaloche, that it was better to dive it at home in Rosh Hashanah and not hit Kiyos Ashoka than to go to a conservative show, because he felt going that the Kervin Shul had lost the Kedushat Beit HaKnesset, and you could not mikayem a mitzvah del raisa or say rather than Golzia. And that was a declaration of we are traditional Orthodox Jews, and we will continue what we always had in coming, and, and the kind of Judaism they are selling you is not what they call nowadays, and I really can't stand the word, but I will use it, authentic. And so, and so that's where I think the battle started. That's where I think it started. He set the line and he said, Adkan Rabotai. I think he said, Adkan Rabotai, no more. We can't do more than that. And then I think the, that on the one hand, two on the other hand, that he went week after week, year after year, and gave Shiorim at YU. And who was coming to him? They were, they were coming to him, young men at, at, at that his, whose parents really were not aware of the differences between Orthodox and Conservative, were coming young men whose rabbis, many times had been their rabbis that sent them. There were whole communities where the rabbis would send the young men to YU, then afterwards they would send the young women to Stern College. And he had this generation, and this generation grew on the one hand. The other hand, he said, 
conservative is wrong. There was a growth of all of these young people. Many of them became academics and they were the Balabatim, but they weren't ignorant Balabatim anymore. They were Balabatim, Yodea Sefer. They were Balabatim, they knew how to learn. And many of them became rabbis. And if someone went to get a job in a show- Rabbis and shuls and educators. And educators, correct. They were rabbis. If anybody went to get a job in a shul, and there weren't many that, that had mechitzas, he would say to them, you can take that job if you make a condition with the, with the uh, board that within a year they have to have a mechitza. And if they don't, then leave. And they listened, and they, they listened, they understood, and the Balabatim understood. And I think that, that so I think the, uh, the, the option of being religious wasn't being Haredi in the United States anymore. Either you had to be Haredi or you had to go away. But all of a sudden, there was a third option. And the third option allowed you to be involved in the world. It, involved, it allowed you to study secular studies. It allowed you to be a Ben Torah. And it allowed you to choose where you wanted to spend your life professionally. Did you want to spend your life professionally doing other things and being a Ben Torah in addition? Or did you only want to spend your life being Marbid's Torah? But they were they were legitimate choices. Before then, you didn't have this, this sliding scale of where you were going to be on the occupational uh, slide. Right. Well, beyond that kind of sense of, you know, drawing a line in the stand and standing on guard to, to, to protect and, and preserve standards and to show that this, this is our way and this is the, you know, the word you're uncomfortable with, the authentic way. Um, I think there was another thing, if, if I can add, and I'm interested in your in your response to what I think. He, he portrayed Torah and halachic commitment and and the whole Jewish initiative as something quite countercultural at a time in mid-century America where Madison Avenue was trying to sell religion as the family that prays together stays together and it will give you all of the answers to all of our societal ills like the generation gap and drugs and divorce and etc he comes out with you know a statement that 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 no advertising man would have recommended no it doesn't give you all the answers it gives you all the questions that keep you up at night searching for answers it's not green pastures and still waters that's only the final a destination, but the path there is quite twisted and tortured and turned. Everything that we all know so well from the very well-known fourth footnote in, in Halachic Man. People must have been scratching their heads saying that the man doesn't, he's disconnected from the reality because this message won't sell. But in fact, the exact opposite happens. Now, how do you think, what, how do you, how did he come to such a, such a, an idea that that was the way to articulate our, our message in a way that most people would have thought was going to sink the ship. You know, when I wrote that article, I, 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 I really struggled with that same question. And I'll give you uh, an, a, a comment and then I'll give you what I think it, what it was, an assumption. First of all, when my father came to the United States, pragmatism was the philosophy of America. America was pragmatic. It drove him out of his mind. Then he thought this was terrible. So pragmatism, uh, 
as I it has no has not I is has no it has no ideals. It's whatever reality is. We'll go along with it. And that was not what he thought. Second of all, there was Norman Vincent Peale, if you remember. How do how, I don't personally that? remember, but I'm a student of history. That's right, Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale said, if you know, if you do this, everything will be fine, and you'll be happy. And this that drove him out of his mind, and that's on the one hand. And so he developed his philosophy. But I thought about the question Lincoln had: Why did it go over so well in America? I have a thought that it might be crazy, it might be correct, or it might be neither. It might be wrong and not crazy. I think the American Jews were very guilty over the Holocaust. They didn't do very much. And here comes a message that talks about suffering and failure and defeat. And it's not terrible that you did it, you did it, and you failed. You tried your best, but you really didn't know how to do it. And that message, I think, spoke to them somehow or other because America was the American dream. He said everything against what they said, the American dream, you just come and you'll work hard and you'll be rich. You'll end up in Hollywood. You'll end up a billionaire. You'll, no, billion. There weren't billionaires. You'll end up a millionaire. You'll have a yacht. And I, I think someplace, someplace underneath in the American Jewish psyche was great guilt for the Shoah. Great guilt, not for the show up, but great guilt why they weren't out on the streets. Because I think later on in 1967, right before the Six-Day War, oh, they were out. They were out in Washington, and they were out in Central Park, and they were doing all kinds of things that they didn't do in 1939. And I that, that, might, that might partially be due to a generational shift from a, a, a Jewish world, which is predominantly immigrants, to one who are American born and are going to feel more comfortable out protesting in the streets. Could be, could be, could be, could be. But to my mind, someplace it's connected. It, it spoke to them. Yeah. It spoke to the American youth. Well, I know that in my generation, the struggle for Soviet Jewry, for example, in the in the in the eighties, you know, served the same purpose uh, and and had you know beyond what it whatever it did or did not accomplish on behalf of Soviet Jewry. It accomplished a lot for American Jewry. Absolutely. And if you have a connection to something and correct, and they also demonstrated for Biafra. If you remember that, that's also that same generation. And they would go to the UN and they would go there. But I think the two of them are somehow or other, somehow or other connected. Why did they accept this message, the American kids? Yeah, on this matter of pragmatism, I'm reminded of uh, something that. your late husband, Zecher Tzadik Levracha, Rav Aaron Lichtenstein, uh, has pointed out that he, he once suggested, I think he has this in one or two places in writing, and I remember him saying this uh, in person, that he thought that the best single introduction to the Rub's thought in writing is the Rub's little essay, Al-Ahavat HaTorah V'Gulat Nefesh Hador, which sadly is not yet available in English. Uh, and there's a lot of... Yeah, there's a line there that uh, that you quote in that essay where the Rub says, even though I've lived in America, this was an essay written in 1960. It says, even though I've lived in America for many years, I have still not adopted the pragmatic view of religion. In my view, faith does not come to serve human needs. And the technological utilitarian desire, which has its place in the scientific consciousness, is characteristic of the transcendental yearning of man. 
I have never tried to explain Torah Yisrael in categories of mental health, spiritual tranquility, and the like, even though this approach is very common here among Jewish thinkers, both Orthodox and non-Orthodox alike. I think that, you know, encapsulates what, uh, you know, what you're, you're saying about his, his position on these, uh, on these, on these matters. Uh, you, you and I, um, you and I have become good friends. Right. <laughs> and, and it's really one of the uh, of the very many unlikely things. Uh, it, it's it's one of it's one that I cherish uh, most in in my life. And and you know we became we became friendly. We started this chavruta uh, of ours in the most authentically Jewish way because we had an argument. <laughs> I, I had I had published something which uh, agitated you a bit. And uh, and then I came to speak to you about it, and and we had a conversation, and that's begun a conversation between us, which has now been going on for a few years, and uh, from which I have benefited from your from your very sage advice and wisdom on a whole variety of of things. <laughs> but part of that disagreement was while we agree that uh, students of the Rav, particularly people like myself, and more so people like my children and students who did not know the Rav, who did not encounter the Rav. I came onto the Jewish scene. I came of age and became involved in Jewish life and learning during the twilight period, when the Rav sadly had exited the public stage, but while he was still alive, and although he wasn't present, he was omnipresent in modern Orthodox Jewish life of my adolescence and early adulthood. But the next generation is even, of course, more removed. And of course, you know, there, there, are, there are students of the Rav's Torah who are now students of people who themselves were students of the Rav. They were already the fourth generation removed. But yet his message is as still as, as, as alive and fresh and meaningful and invigorating as it was to the people like Rabbi Bravin to describe sitting there in the room, although of course the experience by definition has to be has to be different. But you and I disagreed while the Torah, the Lamdus, and the Machshava, the philosophy, are the way into encountering the Rav. What is the role of biography, of understanding his life and other other aspects, other aspects of that? And I tried to express to you, you disagreed, that people, particularly those that did not know him in purpose, in person, find that, find that meaningful to encounter him. You had mentioned a story of somebody that made Aliyala Regel to the shul in, in Brookline to see the shtender that the Rav davened at. You thought that was a form of uh, idolatry or something of, of the sort. So I'm curious. You know, I know your opinion, but I'd like I'd like for you to express your your point of view on this because I think a little bit now, having written a biographical chapter of your your mother and engaged in a number of these conversations, uh, you might be forced to admit that there's something while secondary, <laughs> while tafel, helps us understand the man in full. I so truly go, go at it, punch back at me, and tell me why I'm wrong. 
I, I, I truly appreciate that still willing to fight that fight we had. We had a, a terrible, terrible argument about that. Uh, my father himself always used to say, you don't know the biography of Chazal because the biography is not important. What's important is the thought and the halacha and the and the masora. And so if you want to know what my father's opinion was, it was like that. My father was against biography. My father also, just to just to tell you something, he would be shocked that you were making something in honor of his birthday because when my mother's mother turned 80, my mother wanted to make her a party. And my father said, the only place in Tanakh that a party, a, a birthday appears is... Paro. So there's no way that you were going to make a party. And so yeah. we will continue our argument even over this evening. But fortunately, fortunately, people themselves, even the greatest of people, are not always the arbiters of their own legacy. That's correct. That's correct. That's part of, as you were saying, the long range of how it looks from, from right. Arichat Yamim. But looking, looking from Arichat Yamim, looking now, uh, what do you think, what grade would he give us today? I mean, even, even in the most optimistic uh, hopes that he might have had for where the community might have been led, for which, of course, he, he, he is responsible for so much of the success. How do you think he would, he would evaluate the state of this community, the community that we call modern orthodoxy, a term he never used, uh, uh, a term that he was ambivalent about, but which nevertheless looks to him as its ideological, ideological leader, uh, the, 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 the wellspring uh, from whose water we draw. How, 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 do we, how do we look to him today? What would his charge to us be today? What would his critique of us be today? It's, it's hard for me to answer this about the United States because I'm not in the United States. Uh, and so I really don't know what's going on in the United States. But I, 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 to talk generally, I think he would be very disturbed at the decline in halachic standards and the, the decline in following minhag. Uh, and I think there were certain, that every year, they used to come to my father to discuss with him the Salute to Israel Parade. Salute to Israel Parade was always during Sphiras HaOmer. And he would say to them, Sphiras HaOmer, it's a minhug. You cannot do that. And they would find this and that and this and that. And the, and the feeling in the United States before I came in Aliyah was that Israel would disappear off of the map if there wasn't a salute to Israel parade. You know, that's more important than everything else. And he would argue with them. He more would important argue, than Aliyah. What? More important than Aliyah. Absolutely. I, I, I went to the last Salute to Israel parade. I was working at Stern College, and I went to the girls of Stern College, and I met somebody there. He says to me, where are your children? I said, well, we're going on Aliyah in about three weeks or four weeks or five weeks. And my children went to a baseball game. And he turned around and he said to me, the future of Israel is at stake, and they're going to a baseball game. That that they came here and they went to the army, and they were the, and every one of them was in the Lebanon War. That was irrelevant. What was relevant was <laughs> the Israel parade. So I think I think first of all he would be upset at the lack of keeping minhag, and there were 
basic minhagim that people no longer care, they're no longer keep. Now, I don't know what it's like in America, but here in Israel, I've been here a long time, so I've been, I, I'm not connected to the American community, but here in Israel, there, I went to a wedding of a young woman that is so religious that she walks back three steps at the end of Shemona Esrei and doesn't walk back the three steps until Kedusha. But they didn't read the Ksuba at her wedding because it was not romantic and she didn't like it. And it had nothing to do with her great love for her chassan. And I think he turned over in his grave at the, that thought. I think he, he thought that we had to keep the, the, the minhag, because that was the line of that minhag, it was a part of the Kabbalah, it was part, minhag became, had as much as halacha. Uh, that people, I don't know how much people keep halacha now either, I just don't know. I don't know. I think he would be sorely disappointed, sorely disappointed. That's, that's my feeling. I wonder. I mean, I think there's a sense that overall, Religious observance is is way up above what it was in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, certainly, certainly. My observance. Is, yeah, I know. Halakha observance. Up, but it's a smaller number of people. A small, a small, more people. My husband always used to say, more, fewer people eat matzah, but those that eat matzah, they eat shmuel. We'll have to consult with the with the sociologists to get some some data on this, but, but there's one thing when I became in one of our conversations a few years ago, uh, shortly after I became editor of tradition, you were giving me some advice. And one of the things you said was it shouldn't all be about my father. Right. <laughs> and I think that there's a kind of caricature. Sometimes I get submissions to the journal. Uh, and thank God we have a lot of material coming in and we've been publishing regularly and there's a lot of interest in what we're doing. And sometimes I, I think that there's a kind of caricature amongst potential authors. They'll send an article about something that has absolutely no connection whatsoever to Rabbi Soloveitchik, but they'll feel unless they put in a quote from the lowly man of faith and make reference to the fourth footnote of halachic man, that tradition won't publish it. We'll dismiss it out of hand. And I'm often taking those types of of, of references out because I think your point to me that it shouldn't all be about your father is that Rabbi Soloveitchik valued creativity perhaps above any other religious or intellectual value. And uh, in that regard, you know, looking at us from Gan Eden, at how we're doing now, uh, what do you think he would say? Now, obviously, we study his Torah, we study his, his philosophy, as we do of all great figures. Uh, those that passed away 30 years ago, those that passed away 300 years ago, those that passed away 3,000 years ago. Uh, but in terms of in terms of the ongoing engagement with Torah Sarav, um, how do you feel that's helped us move onward as a creative, spiritual, thinking, religious, intellectual community? Uh, someone came. Someone came. To be Menachem when I was sitting Shiva, and he told the story about my father. That he once asked my father if someone was a genius, and he said, "No, he's a very smart man, this man, but he's not a genius. In order to be a genius, he says, you have to be challenged, and no one has ever challenged that person. And so I think 
he would be upset that all the time they're quoting him and quoting him, they should be challenging him. And he thought that you needed to be challenged in order for you to crystallize your thoughts and people should have a, a they don't need his heksha. They really don't need his heksha, that he himself didn't want his heksha. He always was looking to create a new, and there's a wonderful story they tell about him, that he was studying, he was giving a shia, and he, he, he had a, a question, he didn't know how to answer it. And so someone said, said to him, Rebbe, maybe the answer is this and this. He said, oh, that's very good. Who said it? And they said to him, you said it four years ago when we studied the Masechta. And so he was always creating. And I think if people are going around and they need his heksha, he would think that's not the proper way. You need to be creative. You need to be challenged. You need to come out and refine your own thoughts. You had to build, it's like he said it, I think he said it in Isha that you have to build an edifice. You are an architect. And, and an architect a that's right and an architect does not use the 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 old beams that someone threw out and so i think he would not like this he would not like it. and if that's what i told you don't always publish my father in uh in tradition i think that wasn't a bad idea a young man i know came to me got his first job as a as a as a rabbi, and he came to a show, and he said to me, he came to me to ask me which of my father's books he should study first. I said to him, tell me the people in your shul know Ramban? Have you studied with him, Komish with Ibn Ezra? Have you studied the, the, the Nitziv? I said, why are you starting with him? And he looked at me and left. He never came back again. <laughs> well, that being said, the upcoming issue of tradition is entirely devoted to the thought of Rabbi Soloveitchik with contributions from many writers and scholars, young and old, yourself included. Uh, and today I was sitting and trying to, you know, finish our work on the issue and I was trying to put some thoughts on paper uh, by way of a little editor's introduction to the, to the volume. And I was thinking back on my own first encounters with Rabbi Soloveitchik, which again were as a as a young teenager, uh, making my way into the world of 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 frumkeit, of of Jewish observance, from a, a non-observant background, and my first encounter with the Rav was, of course, from his many students, my own shul rabbi, other people that I encountered in the NCSY youth movement, and then ultimately from this this journal. Uh, it would have been quite impossible for me to then imagine that one day I would occupy the, the corner office here at the Tradition World Center uh, uh, suite of offices um, uh, and sit on the editor's chair. And I was trying to think about, you know, what those, what that encounter with the Rav, uh, what it taught me then. And what I said is the following. Number one is I walked away from it with an idea that there's nothing to fear. That religion is not a response to some kind of anxiety. That it's not, like we said moments ago, it's not solving all of my problems. But it might show me a way to live with some questions. 
And to know that other people greater than me had wrestled with those questions, were still wrestling with those questions, and would wrestle with them still long after I'm gone. And, you know, in that Yiddish expression that I could not have known then, those questions won't be fatal. And then maybe even more important, it taught me that, well, I would say it kind of created a permission structure. A permission structure for faith. That in order to go through that door, I didn't need to close it behind me. That, you know, in the language of Adam 1 and Adam 2, I could enter the covenantal community and still be at home in the majestic community. That it didn't mean leaving my family and my interests and, and myself or a version of myself behind. And that, you know, created a, a bridge through which I could move, I could move back and forth. And although my, my parents, you know, who, like most parents of young Bali Chuva were somewhat alarmed by these processes and they had not read Rabbi Soloveitchik's writings, but when I was able to communicate those ideas to them in terms that they could understand, that I'm still me, right? Uh, that created the space where we could explore where I was going to, to end up. Now, I think those are ideas that are eternal. I think those are ideas that are going to be as meaningful and as powerful in generations to come, generations that will be dealing with questions that we cannot possibly imagine, that the Rav could not have imagined, but that his teachings will yet still bear relevance to help people through all of those types of issues about finding ways for faith and commitment and halacha to have meaning and force in whatever mo modern world each generation will, will, will find itself in. So I think that that's part of what like, we collectively, what orthodoxy, and I think that orthodoxy is doing quite well here in Israel, in the United States, um, with all of our problems, obviously. And I think that that is, is one of the things that we have to credit him, him with, to create those structures that allow for, for us to be who we are uh, maintain our commitments uh, and to to exist in a world with questions, with modernity, and with with all of those with all of those challenges. So, so if you were to ask me, you know, what I got out of it, I think that's I think that's what it is. I think that's true for for so many of us uh, here online and our readers and our listeners around the world. Oh, I agree with you. The first Russians that came out of the first Sarivnikim that came out of Russia. They came here to Alon Shvut, the religious ones. Right, the ones right. that, that were called Rimbichuva. They were coming back not only to Israel, they were, they were coming back first to the people of Israel, and they were coming to the land of Israel. You know the book they all read? The Lonely Man of Faith. Yeah, which had been translated to Russian quite early on. It was, it was translated to Russian in a in a in a short in a abridged version. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? An abridged version, even the abridged version did it. I agree with you. What I said, I agree with you. And I think it, the books that we published of his where were translated into Hebrew. They sold better in Israel than they did in the United States. Uh, the books of the Torah Tarab Foundation. The same, the same book sold more copies in Israel than the United States. The United States, the Rav 
for many of the young people was the study of Gemara. It wasn't the study of, of, of Machshave, which he was very much involved in. And they were used to him. They knew his message. They'd had his message. They were brought up on his message as you came. Here, no one knew his message. The message here was Rav Cook. Yeah. Rav Cook's optimism and Rav Cook's optimism and Rav Cook's sense of the of the um, of the Am Yisrael and the people and 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 peoplehood was what people needed, I think, here in order to build the state. Uh, and, and but after the state was built, and things were not going in that same optimistic way, and the, the decline of socialism, Rabbi Soloveitchik and the Rubs, Ish uh, Halacha, the individualist Ish Emunah, Ish Emunah the man of faith, the lonely man of faith, the Ish Halacha, that's the individual, and over and, the collective. That the, no, the, in a in a in a religious state where the collective was declining and right. the and, particular, and particularly the youth the youth were no longer resonating to those kinds that of uh, treatments. Yeah. All of a sudden, there's someone that talks about isha lacha isha munah boday. Someone that talks the, about the inner the inner religious life of the individual and the individual search for himself, the individual search for meaning. The individual, uh, the individual uh, suffering, the individual sacrificing, and it's one thing that the Israeli youth is do is they sacrifice for the state. Everybody does, and it gave them a sense of there is really meaning in it because the optimism could no longer help them. The optimism could no longer help them, and I think that's the message he's given here in Israel. And it's a, a message that I think was sorely, sorely needed. And I think that's the legacy he leaves here. But he still had a legacy of Isha that you had a Shomesh Kalakik And that's a little bit gone by the boards. <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> On that note, I think we should wrap it up. I, I, I know you must be just so uh, exhausted physically and emotionally, and I'm so grateful to you you've made this time with us tonight on your father's 120th birthday. The special issue of tradition will be appearing in about a month's time. Subscribe now to make sure that you get your copy delivered in, in, in the mail. Visit us on webyeshiva.org to participate in all of our very, very many uh, ongoing learning opportunities here with Rabbi Chaim Bravender and so, so many others. My very, very Deep thanks to you, Dr. Tova Lichtenstein. Again, our tanchumim on the loss of your sister. My thanks again to Rabbi Chaim Bravender and to Molly Brofsky for the first hour of our program. And uh, we will we will leave it there as we all now turn our attention to go studying some of the Rav's Torah.